Good morning. So, for those of you who perhaps were not here last week, or if you're new with us, uh, just to bring everyone up to speed, our church is in a bit of transition. We are actually moving towards a relaunch. Uh, that relaunch will occur on the second September, or excuse me, the second Sunday in September on September 11th, and. In the midst of that, we have, uh, or excuse me, Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. Perhaps you've heard us uh, mention that church. They have so wonderfully partnered with us. They are helping us tremendously uh, as we move towards that relaunch. And when we reopen uh, in September, this church, which is now known as Christ Community Church of Plainfield, will be known as Plainfield CRC or Plainfield Christian Reformed Church. And so, if you hear that name tossed around in these weeks to come as we move towards that transition, that's, where we're mo- that's the uh, direction we're going. Well, in the midst of that, however, as we move towards that relaunch, we are looking at or sort of asking the question of what is the church? That's, that's what we're doing right now. We're preparing for that transition. And, and as we do, I want us to think about it. So we move towards relaunch. What is the church? So last week, we talked about the church being a place where the gospel is preached. It is only valuable to you if that gospel is preached. And so this week, we are continuing that series, and we're looking at and asking those questions continually of what is the church. So if you have your Bible with you, I'd invite you to turn to 1 Corinthians. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 31. 1 Corinthians, verse 18 through 31. This is God's word. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, excuse me, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God, and because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Let's pray together. 
Our gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you that you have called us once again into your presence to worship you, Lord, where we may be nourished on your word. And we ask now, as your word goes forth, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be pleasing and acceptable to you, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. In your Son's name, amen. I have climbed the highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm sure most of you are familiar with the words of this song. If you're not, then I'd invite you to come and and sit down and have a chat with me, and we can talk about your music taste, and I'd be happy to pray with you. Uh, but this song came out in 1987, and according to this band, who grew up in the Church of Ireland and has, actually has a Christian background, uh, this song, surprisingly, is not actually about romantic love. It's not about finding uh, the right woman for Bono, but it describes a sort of spiritual yearning. A sort of searching for transcendence and for the ultimate. This song actually describes a searching for God. And the singer here in this song, he says that he searches high and low. He searches the mountains, he searches the fields, he searches the cities. And then the next verse, he actually goes on to look for him in relationships. He looks for transcendence and love and in sex. He goes on in the next verse to talk about religion. There's a weird verse about holding the hands of the devil, and I'm, I'm honestly not sure what that means. But he's searching. He's searching. And yet, the chorus continues on. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Well, this song, it was an instant success. 35 years later, it continues to be a classic. It was just redone with Scarlett Johansson and, and the new kids movie Sing 2. The movie was okay. Uh, the song was still good. And I'm sure there's something to be said about why this song is so popular, right? That catchy chorus and the musical caliber of it all. But I really do think that what has made this song such a classic are these potent words, right? These highly relatable lyrics. They really do capture this common sense that we all have of wandering and searching for higher things. I'm sure that many of us have come here this morning because we understand exactly what Bono is getting at. We continue to have this sort of spiritual yearning. I'm sure many of us have echoed that phrase, and many of us might still echo that phrase, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I keep searching and searching and searching. And I've even felt like I've gotten close a couple of times. But if I'm honest, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. I still haven't found Him. I still haven't found God. 
And this type of spiritual angst, it's by no means a, a new phenomenon. About 1,500 years ago, St. Augustine, he so poignantly said this, because you, God, have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Well, this morning we are going to be talking about that quest, about that quest for God, about that, that searching that we all seem to have. And here at the start, I want to just ask this simple question to you all. Do you know where to look? Do you know where to look? Where is God to be found? That's an important question, don't you think? That's the question I want us to ask this morning, and thankfully, I think our passage has a great deal to say about that. And so my hope is that by the end of this sermon, by the end of this morning, you can leave here fully confident, ready to answer that question and know where it is that God is to be found. But Paul here, in writing to the church in Corinth, he's also, he's, excuse me, he's not only good at providing us with that answer, but he's also very good at giving us the problem, our problem, and why it is that it is so difficult for us to find him. Why we continue to have difficulty after difficulty in our search. And so before we get to the answer, I want us to first look at the problem. Why do we have such trouble finding God? This brings us to our first point that's going to help divide our time this morning. Our first point of 15. I'm just kidding. It's our first point of three. I know you all were worried. First point is this, the old methods. The old methods. So Albert Einstein was the one who coined the phrase, insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And here in our passage, Paul is admonishing the church in Corinth for these divisions that had arisen within the congregation. These debates, this, this quarreling that's arisen over this matter of leadership and authority and teaching. Each person seemed to have been choosing the apostle or the teacher or the leader that they liked best and, and holding that teacher over and against the other. Some were saying, well, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas. Or the really spiritual ones were like, no, I just follow Jesus. But Paul here is hearing these reports of this quarreling, and he's utterly bewildered. He says, what foolishness. Why would you use your old worldly methods to assess the spiritual value of your teacher's? And of your leaders, the sort of ranking, this competing, and finding out what makes one person stack up against another, that makes very good sense in this world and in this age. If you're trying to figure out who to give a promotion to, that makes very good sense. That makes good sense in school. That makes good sense in sports. If you're trying to put your not Final Fantasy. See, I'm not a sports guy. Fantasy football, that's the one. 
if you're trying to put your fantasy football list together. And that makes good sense there. But as he goes on to explain, those sorts of methods make zero sense in the church. They make zero sense here. If you're looking at where things measure up in this world in order to discern their spiritual quality, then you will never see God. You will never see God. Why? Because God is not where the world expects Him to be. According to Paul, God is found in the word of the cross. That is where God is found. God is found in this foolish word of this unattractive, unglamorous, weak, and ugly cross. That's where Paul says he can be found. And he says, you know what? That word of the cross, it's going to hit people in two ways. In verse 18, he says this, For the word of the cross is folly. Moria. It's moronic. It's foolish to those who are perishing. But to us, to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why is this message so foolish to this world? Well, that's because it doesn't compute with our old, our common methods. The gospel actually represents the exact opposite of what this world values. And we see that in the two what we'll call cultural idols that Paul directs our attention to. In verse 22, he says this, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. What does this mean? Well, if you remember back in the Gospels, all the interactions, the continual interactions that Jesus had with the Pharisees, what is it that they would continually ask of him? Give us a sign. Give us a sign that you are who you say you are. They wanted their Messiah to come in mighty acts of power, to be impressive, to be powerful. Why? Because they wanted their Messiah to get rid of the Romans. That's what makes sense in this world. That's how wars are won in this world. The stronger army defeats the weaker army. Our God, if we want to defeat the Romans, must be strong. He must be powerful. And so they were demanding for God to come as they expected. As a mighty and powerful warrior king. But it was this expectation based in worldly standards, that caused him to miss his coming. And for the Greeks, Paul looks at them and he says, the reason that they will not accept this word of the cross, the reason that it is so foolish, is because they want wisdom to be hard. 
They want it to be difficult to get to God. They wanted transcendence to come not through some asinine word about God coming down, becoming man, dying on a cross. Oh, they wanted strong and impressive arguments matched with these eloquent words and polished speech and beautiful rhetoric. The cross is too unsophisticated. It's too elementary. There's no status there. There's no honor in accepting this fairy tale. And in both of these schools, in both of these methods for gaining transcendence, we see the exact same system. We assume that what we see as good and as strong and as smart and as clever, that God sees in the exact same way and reveals himself in the exact same way. But Paul says, not so. Not so with God. To the world's surprise, God is not where we expect him to be. And you see, our problem in our searching for him is that we assume that God is just like us and that he can be found the exact same way you get a promotion at work or the exact same way you get an A on a paper or the exact same way you get a gold medal in a sport. That God can be found through hard work and through striving and through being better and through human cunning. And we think that God is near those whom this world values as impressive and honorable. I think of the, the parable of the, of the rich man and Lazarus. This gives us such a, a wonderful example there in Luke 16. The rich man who's dressed in beautiful garments and fine clothes and purple tunic. He feasts on these sumptuous meals, and we would look at him and we would say, that's God's man, because God has blessed him. He must be doing something right. But Lazarus, who's sores dogs lick and who feeds on scraps from his table. That's not where God is. But the shock, the surprise of the parable is that when they pass, you find out who God's man was. Paul actually says this sort of thinking, or excuse me, he says this about this sort of thinking. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Now friends, you and I are guilty of this very same thing time and time again. Of looking for God in all the wrong places. 
and trying to use our same old tricks, the same old methods to try to climb this ladder of transcendence to try to attain up to him. Trying to make ourselves worthy of God because the God we seek looks more like the world than the one in Scripture. But the scandal of the gospel is that you don't need to climb a ladder. You don't need to climb a ladder to get to God. There's no step and step and step. There's no hoops you need to jump through. There's no rings that you need to continually try to get through. The way you get to God is through the descended Christ who came down to you. God came to you. He came to you on an ugly cross. And He still comes to you now, this morning. And that brings us to our second point. That was the first point, the old methods. Second point is what we'll call the ordinary means. The ordinary means. So if God is revealed in this word on the cross, then the question is how does this word come to you? That's our question. If God is revealed in this word on the cross, then how does that word come to you? Well, let's look at verse 21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, one of the things I want us to note about this verse is that where it says, through the folly of what we preach, there's actually another way to read this. In, in the Greek, it quite literally just reads, through the folly of preaching. Through the folly of preaching. Some of your translation, your translation might make a small note about that. And so the whole verse would read this. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of preaching to save those who believe. I think that this is actually the preferred way to read this text. If you look at the context, if you look at those verses, right before you get to verse 18, what is Paul talking about? Preaching. I didn't come to you with eloquent words. And if you look at the section right at the beginning of chapter 2, we see, again, Paul focusing on preaching. And so why is this important? Why do I bring this up? It's important because here, Paul is telling you the means, the way in which God has chosen to reveal himself. Through wisdom, the world did not know God, but through preaching. Yes, as we said before, God is to be found in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is where God has revealed himself. That's the message of the gospel. But God is not only concerned, here's the important part that I want us to, to note, God is not only concerned with the message concerning himself, but he is also concerned with the means, with the way in which that message comes to you. That is to say that God is also concerned with the means. 
within the history of the Reformed Church, our heritage as a part of the Christian Reformed Church, this has been understood as the chief duty of the church. The chief duty of the church has been to faithfully administer what has been called the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace. There is grace to be had from God in the good news of the gospel, but the question is, how does that grace come to you? How does that grace come to you? Is the church a place where we require, where we hold the gospel back as some sort of esoteric secret knowledge that you have to be here for a while, you have to jump through some certain hoops, you have to get promoted and make it to certain levels before you're able to know the secret of the gospel? Do we require that you've, you've paid your dues before this word comes to you? Do we require, before you know the truth of the gospel, that you tithe faithfully, that you've paid enough into it? Does the church have a series of hoops for you to jump through? Is the gospel only attained by reaching a certain status? Is the gospel only for the wise and the clever who know where to find it? Well, the Reformed tradition has deduced from God's Word that God has ordained that this Word of the cross, God revealed that it come to you primarily through preaching. Primarily through preaching and the administering of the sacraments. Those are the two means of grace. The preached Word and the sacraments. Next week, we're going to be taking, I'm very happy to say, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. And so next week, we're going to continue that conversation on the sacraments. But here today, this morning, as you are hearing the preached Word of God, this Word concerning Jesus Christ, who died on the cross for your sins, this Word of grace, it comes to you now, not as my words, but as the words of God for you. It's not only for some. These words that are from God, this gospel is not only for some. It's not for those who have been here for X amount of years. It's not for those of a certain status, a certain sort of income. It's not for the Jew only. It's not for the Greek only. But what does Paul say? It's for both Jew and Greek. This preached word of grace is for all. It's for all of you. And this is what I want to be sure that every person in this church understands. This is what I want us all to understand. My primary role as your pastor is to preach this word to you, this word of grace, this word of life to you. And your primary role as a congregant of this church is to receive it as grace. As grace from God 
your Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's this whole thing. That's this whole dance that we're doing. This isn't just a classroom. This isn't just a place where you come to get more bits of Bible information or Bible trivia. This is not a place where you come to be entertained. This is not a place where I come to give you a motivational speech or to give you some sort of tips to make your life better. This isn't even a place where you come to know who to vote for. This is a place where you come to hear the Word of God declared to you, to keep reminding you again and again and again of the good news of the gospel that is for you. This is what the pastor is called to do, to declare this word to you. This is what God has ordained. This is how this grace is intended to come to you. And so if you want God, this is where He is. This is where He is. What Paul is saying here is that this ordinary act of preaching, this ordinary simple act, is intended to be the primary means for God's grace to not only go out into the world, but in order to sustain you in this life and to prepare you for the next. It's through preaching that's the primary way that you are to be nourished and fed in your Christian life. And that might seem really boring. That might seem really simple. That might seem too ordinary for some of you. But now I want to tell you why that's actually very good news. And this is going to bring us to our final point which will be brief. So if you're following along, our first point was the old methods. Our second point is ordinary means. And our last point is weak and, or excuse me, the gospel for weak and foolish people. I couldn't think of another alliteration. The M-O was not working, but these are not eloquent words. So the reason God has ordained these ordinary means of grace for you, this means of preaching for you, is because you and I are weak and foolish. You and I are weak and foolish. Look at verse 26. Paul ends this section with, with quite a little bit of an insult. He says this, For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Brothers and sisters, the church is not the prettiest girl at the dance. It's not filled with the, the sharpest tools in the shed. God does not want to call the wise and the strong to himself. But what does it say? God calls the weakling. He calls the foolish. He calls the dummies, 
He calls those who are nothing. That's who God has chosen to reveal himself to. And this is something that you and I are very good at forgetting. This is something that you and I are very good at forgetting. And we can see that in all of these sort of funny things that the church likes to do. Here in the church of Corinth, what do we see? We see them choosing, picking and choosing which apostles they liked better, which ones sounded better to them. Oh, this guy has the truth. That guy's okay, but we follow him. Well, Paul ends actually this section and he says, You fools, don't you know that all of these people are for you? Why are you picking and choosing? They're all for you. And we see the same foolishness today. I was in a conversation earlier, earlier this week with some new friends of mine about those who have forsaken the church because they've preferred a form or a type of Christianity that's just you and your Bible. It's just you and your Bible. There's no need for the church. There's no need uh, to come and to hear some guy yak at you for probably too long by now. There's no need for that. I, all I need is my personal devotional time. It's the one that doesn't value preaching. It doesn't value this gift which God has clearly ordained for His people to be sustained in grace. Friends, this is, this is a terribly unhealthy form of Christianity if it is such a thing. It is a very arrogant form of Christianity. God has chosen to reveal Himself in the Word of the cross but he's also ordained the manner in which that word is intended to primarily come to you. Do not reject it. Brothers and sisters, do not reject this good gift which God has given to you because you think you are stronger and you are smarter and you can make it on your own. Remember that not many of you were wise, not many of you were strong but that's okay. Because even though you and I are very good at forgetting, God is not. No, God prepares a feast every week for you through these ordinary, simple means of grace, through this simple preached Word. He prepares it for fools like you and me for the week in order to sustain you in this life. It's not glorious. It's not glamorous. You might find it boring and painfully ordinary. But that is wonderful news because so are we. Painfully boring, Painfully slow. And so in coming back to that question at the start as we close, where is God to be found? You don't need to climb the highest mountain. 
You don't need to plumb the depths of the earth. You don't need to attain to some sort of higher status. You don't need to make yourself better. You don't need to compete with those around you. I hate to break it to you. You're not smart enough for that. But that's okay. God doesn't ask you to be. God just tells you to come here. That he may care for you. And love you. And give you words of eternal life. God meets with you here and now in this foolish preached word of an ugly cross. And this word about the God of heaven coming down, becoming weak, becoming foolish, becoming as you are, in order that you may become as he is, holy and righteous and good. That's where God is. He's not in the glorious things or the glamorous things, but in the ordinary. In this ordinary preached word that is coming to you now. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you to receive it. These are the words of eternal life. Amen? All right, let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you that you care for us. You care for the lost. You care for the slow. Lord, you call us sheep, for that is what we are. And we ask, Lord, that you would make our hearts humble, that we would set our hearts low, and that we would hold our hands open, ready to receive you once again. In your son's name, amen.